Let's start with hope. I threw it in the middle like a skipping stone. The ripples won, son of a god. Some would not have thought so. take that seriously but along the way a rogue ripple turned tidal wave in reaction to what I tried to do a rebirth of a nation's hatred red, white, and blue is black in there too seriously one man Writing the book on bad behavior, maybe cheats the neighbor. You see, guess what they pay for? We can pat him on the back and send him on through. No man's ignorance will ever be his virtue. Is this the best we can do? Seriously. Let's talk of fear And why I don't bring it in here It's a dangerous word Spooks the herd And we all bleed in the stampede Fear makes a false friend indeed And I take it seriously Oh, hear me now For the truth gets drowned out by a demigod flexing, a demigod flexing, he's history repeating. Angry, am I angry? You ask, am I angry? And I had a lost boy for all we've done. Every battle hard won, every hair gone gray in the name of this place. In a history place with incredible mistakes. Still, I pledge my allegiance to these united, divided states. See. Let's end with why It's a question I Wanna ask of us as a populace Why not take our time All the way of this story Seriously Welcome to Crowdsourcing the Revolution. I'm Amanda Rice. Welcome, Charlie. And that is Frida the Foster Cat, if you can hear her in the background there. <laughs> She's quite mad, apparently, about the topic of today's show, which is gerontocracy. The reason I wanted to do this show is it seems timely and what I
done is I've put together the clips from two shows that are both kind of on the lefty side of things and have two different kinds of takes on gerontocracy. And so they will describe it far better than I will. If you, as we're listening, if you would like to call in, if you have a question or you would like me to pause, good to do that to engage in discussion. Well, so the two programs today have differ, different viewpoints about the causes and effects of having the oldest leaders in our history. So I hope you've joined us with some thoughts. Maybe you've listened to these ahead, which I hope you have, but no shade if you haven't. And right before we get into the meat of the action, I do want to let folks know that coming up this week, October 15th to the 22nd, the, the United National Anti-War Coalition is having Back to the Streets, October 15th to the 23rd, which they are doing protest in the streets, say no to US wars. There are actions in multiple cities. I will put the link to the, to the website for, for the United National Anti-War Coalition. And so you can see if there is an event already in your town and if there isn't, they are encouraging people to have one. So that's the week of action October 15th to the 22nd, and that's the United National Anti-War Coalition. And their website will be in the chat in a moment. That said, we're going to, I'm gonna get started with the first segment. I'm sorry, I'm having trouble with my soundboard. Welcome to Politics in Question, the show where we talk. Welcome to Politics in Question, the show where we talk about our failing political institutions and how to fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, Senior Fellow at New America. I'm Julia Azari. I'm Associate Professor of Political Science at Marquette University. So a lot of young people seem pretty pissed off about politics today. And a lot of young people just don't pay attention at all. A lot of them are angry at the Democrats. Some of them are even more angry at Republicans. And a lot of them are wondering why even bother to vote because nothing changes. And we have the oldest president, Joe Biden, at 79 still, last I checked. And uh, before him, Trump was the oldest president ever. So what's going on? Is it time to pass the torch? And if so, what would passing the torch mean? Is there a generational divide in politics? And what happens if that generational divide comes into the open? Or is it already there? Uh, to help us 
think about these questions today and talk more broadly about generational conflicts in our politics is Kevin Munger, who's an assistant professor of political science and social data analytics at Penn State University. Uh, he is also the author of a new book, Generation Gap, Why the Baby Boomers Still Dominate American Politics and Culture. Welcome, Kevin. Uh, thanks, Lee. I'm happy to be here. Why are we still governed by baby boomers and the remarkably old, inquires the New York Times. Why do such elderly people run America, wonders the Atlantic magazine. Gerontocracy is hurting democracy, insists New York Times magazine's intelligencer. Too old to run again? Biden faces questions about his age as crises mount, reports The Guardian. Though these headlines are framed as exploratory questions, news media seems to have largely made up its mind. The problem with Washington is that it's just chock full of too many geezers. In recent years, we've heard that U.S. policymaking, helmed at the federal level by 70 and 80-somethings such as Donald Trump, Joe Biden, Nancy Pelosi, and at a state level by similarly aged Dianne Feinstein, Chuck Grassley, and Pat Leahy, is simply growing too old and out of touch with the electorate. There is some credence to this. It's certainly true that those occupying the most powerful positions in U.S. government, on the whole, don't legislate to the needs of the public, whether on health care, policing, education. But is that really because of legislators' age? Why does age have to be the focus in so many analyses, rather than policy positions and, relatedly, class interests, which exist independent of someone's age? Who does it serve to reduce causes of U.S. austerity politics and violence to pat Pepsi marketing-style generation gap discourse? On today's show, we'll detail how generation analysis is ineffectual and more often than not misses the mark. We'll discuss how fears of gerontocracy can, if not an intent, in effect, malign old age itself and stigmatize the elderly and, above all, distract from what could be a more substantive critical analysis of real, more profound vectors of oppression such as class racism, sexism, and, and anti-LGBTQ currents. We'll be speaking with Winslow Eric Wright, author and activist whose writing covers disability rights, the struggle for authenticity under capitalism, and participatory democracy. I think there is something to be said for, you know, the generations being pitted against each other. I think that's a lot of what's happening. And it obscures the fact that I, as a millennial, share a lot of interests with another boomer who's situated similarly economically. But when you frame it as gerontocracy or, you know, our leadership is too old, and there is a kernel of truth to that. But when you really get into the stigma and the hatred that's attached with those ideas, that separates me from the other people I might unite with to undertake the collective action that's necessary to actually challenge the problems we're facing. So those are the introductions to politics in question and citations needed, who recently both did shows on this topic. You might notice citations needed is a little bit higher quality. It's been around a little longer. But also uh, politics in question comes at it from an angle that is more toward the establishment or the standard narrative that we had been 
or at least me, how I had looked at it. And it's very interesting um, to me, which is why I'm doing this show and comparing the two shows. We're going to first dive in a little bit deeper and hear from the, um, the author that Politics in Question spoke to. Each of these clips is about somewhere between one and three minutes. And I welcome calls in. Stoopy, welcome. I'm glad you're here. And, and feel free to drop a question in the chat if you have a question. And we're going to do the next. American politics is a victim of its own success. American politics is a victim of its own success. And that people really don't appreciate the work and care required to keep democracy. I've really, honestly, mostly in thinking about that, have trained this on my own generation, on kind of young Gen X old millennials, um, and the level of apathy that a lot of us displayed as we were aging into the electorate in the late 90s and the early 2000s. But I also think there's something here about potentially about the experience of the baby boomers, not old enough to remember World War II, you know, born after the Great Depression. So kind of not appreciating these moments of, of crisis in American democracy and these sort of moments of critical decision making. And then, you know, kind of only seeing only seeing American democracy being successful and really, you know, pushing at the boundaries of that in the way that they have have thought about politics, really engaging in, uh, you know, the disinformation politics. I would be, I would love to hear more about the boomer story of Fox News, not on the consumption side, but on the supply side. And, you know, that, that's sort of my other theory is that boomers sort of lack, maybe they lack a general, generational awareness of the fragility of democracy and have acted accordingly. I'm, I'm curious what you think about these takes. Well, I'm happy to be of service in terms of helping you bolster your pet theories. Uh, there's a lot to unpack here, so let me uh, take these in turn. I think you're clearly right that no institution is robust to the attempt to misuse it and that we're trying to design institutions which are somewhat less fragile. Um, but the phrase suffering from success, I think, is, is quite accurate. The U.S. Constitution is the oldest constitution in history and as a result was designed the longest to go. It's kind of tautological, but it means that it meet, that the context in which it was designed is the farthest removed from the context in which we're living today. And I think that, that analogy to how the baby boomer generation, who are now at the top of the age cycle, experience the world is apt. So there's a emphasis in many circles, rightly so, on the idea of lived experience. Right? We think that this is a very important kind of knowledge, that the way in which people learn from their own lives should be respected and that we should give them credit for the, how they've experienced the world. So the baby boomers came of age in a period of unique economic prosperity and within their generation, white baby boomers in particular, quite a bit of economic equality. They essentially lived the American dream. They all worked hard. They played by the rules. They were rewarded. So the number of baby boomers who went on to become wealthier than their parents is extremely high. And so they believe the system works. They believe that the democracy they've inherited is incredibly robust. And they think that the 
economy that they have lived with is is the same that it always was. And I think these things are not really the case. But this is where it's so hard to make the argument, right? That their lived experience is actually wrong. That is that the world in which they lived is different from the world that we live in today. And so a kind of meta level question is what kind of evidence or what kind of arguments could we use to convince them that, that is the case? That their experience of paying for their college by mowing lawns in the summer is a complete fantasy in the contemporary world. I think this is the specific kind of argument that many people are familiar with making. But then the analogy to how democracy functions today versus how it functioned in the past. I personally, I come from uh, most of my research is about media and social media and the internet and politics in particular. So I'm, I'm quite sympathetic to the idea that the changing media environment is a major lever for why politics is different now than it was today. And so I think that the baby boomers might acknowledge that the internet is quite different than the world of their youth, of the democracy functioning the way they thought it should. But I don't think many of them have a good understanding of what to do, which is fair enough. I don't think anyone really does. So I think that's kind of the central tension here. that We have this single generation at the top of the age pyramid who is extremely powerful and self-confident, but the world is changing under their feet because of longstanding shifts in demographics, the economy, and then very rapid recent shifts in the media technological environment. Is the, is the conflict that they feel about whether or not to vote or, or you know, do, do they have more power by withholding their vote? Is that, is that something new? Is this generational conflict distinct to help us make sense of what's going on right now in our politics? So there's a lot to dig into here. On the one hand, it's a eternal fact of human life in the modern era that the young feel like the world they've inherited is not the world they want to live in and that the old are holding them back. So this is kind of a tale as old as time. But you're right that there's something distinct about what's going on in the political world right now, and especially in the American political world. So I think that to get at your question, it helps to take a slightly more comparative case. So it's true that we do have the oldest president in history who took over for the second oldest president in history, and that we have the oldest House of Representatives, the oldest Senate in history. We're almost certainly going to break those records uh, next, next election cycle. And that's the case in the United States, but it's not the case in many of these other established democracies have much younger politicians. And so I think there's two reasons for this. One is the thesis of my book, which is that the baby boomer generation in the United States is a historically unique generation that the combination of their demographic heft, their economic success, and their control of political and cultural institutions has meant that they are holding on to power at the top of the age bracket much longer than previous generations had. And so as a result, younger generations, and in this case, particularly the numerous but comparatively underdeveloped millennial generations, are not able to begin the process of entering into the political sphere in the same way as previous generations had. And to return to the comparative case, 
This is made much worse because of the two-party system in the U.S. So because of our electoral institutions, it's very difficult to have third parties or non-mainstream parties. But in contrast, in many European countries, we have youth-oriented parties, like in many cases the Green Party, where young people are able to start the process of political socialization. And there's a virtuous cycle where you can get a small number of politicians into parliament, and that allows you to coalesce a base of party activists to establish a foothold in terms of actually controlling real estate and then bootstrapping that party and, and keeping young voters excited and then ultimately developing a better pool of candidates, a more seasoned pool of activists, and then getting the issues you care about onto the table when it comes time to form a, a coalition government. And so that's none of that's possible in the two-party system in the United States. Both of the two parties are dominated by the boomer generation. And so they have been quite effective at preventing younger generations in either party from reorienting the political arena towards their issues. And in many cases, the style of campaigning and discourse that younger generations prioritize. And so I think that the larger question that we should be asking is what is the status and what is the role of older people in our society today? So whereas some societies tend to reserve a central place for older people in the extended family or in the community, American society does not place especially high status on older people, uh, largely because our dominant ideology is progress, both economic progress, and cultural, progressive, liberal progress. And in both of these ways, in both of these forms of progress, in many ways, older people are simply in the way. They're not able to help us move forward. And so we would prefer that they simply go away, that they get out of the way of younger generations who are going to push things forward. And, you know, that's the kind of the culture we have, uh, for better and worse. But I think that this is a kind of consequence of it, that there is a kind of situation now where, thanks particularly to increased longevity, we simply have more older people who can expect to live to be 85 or 90 than ever before. And the loneliness element, I think, is quite serious. Um, they're not embedded in rich social networks. They're no longer able to derive meaning or value from contributing economically through their job, which is how many of us in America tend to define ourselves. And they're given just 12, 16 hours a day to consume extremely potent, toxic political media. And so I think that we're kind of reaping what we've sown in terms of how we organize society when we have a kind of mass radicalization, even growth of nihilism among older people who we are not really taking care of. And the irony, again, is they, they are so economically successful. They tend to own very desirable homes and to control a huge amount of the national wealth. So it doesn't seem like they're a sympathetic case, but if we examine the social world they inhabit, I think there is a sympathetic case and that this is the kind of large-scale rethinking or at least thinking about how we deal with aging that the boomer aging crisis occasions. And so the last point is about uh, race and immigration. It's true that I think, the, depending on how you define previous waves of immigrants like Irish, Italians, and, and Jewish people who were originally not considered white, they were considered racialized minorities, but then became by and large in fits and starts throughout the 20th century, 
deracialized, became seen as uninflected whites. Right around the baby boomers' birth, the period of, right after World War II, the U.S. was at its whitest in history. And this is compounded by the changing immigration laws. So we restricted immigration in the early 20th century. So if you look at the percentage of foreign-born people over time, again, 1950 is the decade in which the lowest percentage of foreign-born people were living in the United States. So in those two dimensions, the boomers experienced the most racially homogenous context in American history. And they have lived to see America change into the most racially diverse it has ever been. And so that's a pretty vertiginous change. And I think that that is like the actual fact of that change explains why these kinds of topics are so salient to this generation. So I thought that was an extremely interesting point. And as politics in question advances the discussion, I'm kind of nodding my head along because this is all stuff. This is the story that, that the narrative I'm familiar with. We've got one more, one more here from politics in question. And it is here. Talking about generations is not particularly popular in serious quantitative analysis today because there's no policy prescription. Like, what are we going to do? We're looking at a tide which started to move 60 years ago. And we are seeing how that plays out today. And there's nothing we could do about this fact. But I think that the first step is to acknowledge that it's happening, which will then allow us to perhaps see the next wave coming and figure out how to adjust our institutional structures, social security, obvious example, to this demographic fact. And I mean, I just keep coming back to the fact that countries are people, right? So the distribution of ages in a country is a central fact of what a country is. It's not some ancillary fact or, or some little tidbit of trivia. It is central to how a country operates and how it organizes itself. And so looking at these simple demographic facts and trends, I think, does illustrate why the world feels so weird right now, the tension between a dominant older generation and a revolutionary technology means that things just don't make sense. So, so let's hear what Citations Needed has to say to that, because I was all on board for most of what that podcast, now I only played you a few clips, you can go look it up yourself, Politics in Question, and I do encourage you to support other podcasters because there's a lot of people making really good content out here. To that point, Winslow, like, what do you think is the utility of, you know, thinking about why the old guard lingers on, right? And why young blood is said to be needed to change things when the reason there are people in these jobs for such a long time is because they don't upset the power structure. And it is actually harder to challenge that and stick around, which may also account for this kind of young, old dynamic in politics. I mean, I think that's exactly right. I think you pretty much said it, that, you know, the, if you're amenable to how the system works now, you're more likely to keep functioning in it. And the people who don't, 
they are weeded out. And I think it's also, it's really hard. I mean, Congress, their re-election rate is really high. Like it's just hard to unseat someone these days and there aren't a lot of competitive districts. So I think the parties have a huge say in, you know, the party hierarchies get to decide who's going to be running in those districts, even the ones that, mm-hmm. you know, a younger person, a, a progressive might be able to take. Like, I think the examples of you know younger progressive people basically seizing power, they've been going against the party hierarchy, like AOC, like, I don't think they wanted her to run them. And she, I mean, I mean, she unseated a really senior figure in the party. Like, Absolutely. I, I don't think that's, that's probably not a, generalizable strategy. I mean, it should definitely be attempted more, but that kind of approach, it's not going to change the overall makeup of our leadership. And I think that the people who are arguing about gerontocracy, labeling our problems as stemming from gerontocracy and not something else that, you know, someone like AOC might draw attention to, they know that they're holding like all the keys and all the doors. In my research, I found advocates of the gerontocracy theory, they're very concerned about, or, you know, they're purportedly very concerned about representativeness of government and responsiveness and things like that. But they're not talking about how wealthy Congress people are. For example, the 116th Congress, I believe, a majority of them are millionaires. And the median wealth of a congressperson, over a million dollars. And with race, there are three black senators right now serving. Mm -hmm. And the black population in the country is about 13.5%. So if people are actually concerned about representativeness of government and responsiveness. Oh, they don't, they don't mean that. No, they mean this other superficial thing. (laughs) Not at all. That we, yeah, no, if you, if you tried to have an income, representative income distribution, that would, that would uh, not work. Yeah. I, I mean, I was going to say, like, why are they not talking about racial quotas, gender quotas, wealth and income cap. Like if they're talking about age limits, why not cap wealth? Yeah. Prior to 2018, the Saudi parliament had a higher female representation than the U.S. Congress did because they're required by law to have 20% representation. Of course, it's a Saudi parliament, so it has no actual power. But nevertheless, quite embarrassing. Quite embarrassing. More in the Saudi Senate than in ours. Two more clips. How ageism and this how ageism and this idea of gerontocracy winds up being a really good way to flatten questions of power by sort of shoving it into this generational discourse, but avoiding the real issues that are at stake. Yeah. So what started me on this issue was just seeing some of the vitriol directed at older people that, you know, generations aren't a monolith and there are lots of lovely boomers and lovely older people. And it just was really indiscriminate. And I think that's what started me on it. But I really got a lot deeper into it when I was researching the article, and I came across Elon Musk's take on it. And Elon Musk, not only the richest person in the world, but someone who inveighs against the woke mind virus being a threat to human civilization. And his take in his interview in Business Insider, which, you know, he talked about a lot of things, but he was basically saying that people don't change their minds, they just die. And that older people are suffocating our society, they're holding back progress. And that the answer to that is to prohibit them from holding office. I think the limit that he gave was 70 years old. And that totally crystallized what was going on for me. Because as you pointed out, 
Musk is the richest person in the world. He is the very definition of the establishment. And I think the framing of our problems is stemming from gerontocracy and not something like plutocracy or patriarchy or white supremacy serves three main functions. And I think they're connected. And the first is that, as you say, it misdirects from those things. It takes attention away from them. The real sources of our problem are the structures of capitalism, their neoliberal ideology, there's racism, sexism, and the role of the ultra rich in all of this. So it misdirects away from that. But then once that anger is taken away, it's undirected anger. And then I feel like people like Musk and people like Peter Thiel, who has similarly criticized the gerontocracy, I feel like that they can then harness that undirected anger to make themselves seem like outsiders. To support Blake Masters, <laughs> the guy who's running for Congress who acts and looks just like a school shooter. But yeah, who's like, what, 40 something? Yeah, I think they take that and they harness it for their own purposes. And they're the consummate insiders and they're using it to draw a distinction between themselves and the people, other people in power. And there's really not much difference there. Right. Right. The final thing that I think is connected is that it divides people. And it, I think there is something to be said for, you know, the generations being pitted against each other. I think that's a lot of what's happening. And it obscures the fact that I, as a millennial, share a lot of interests with another boomer who's situated similarly economically. But when you frame it as, gerontocracy or, you know, our leadership is too old. And there is a kernel of truth to that. But when you really get into the stigma and the hatred that's attached with those ideas, that separates me from the other people I might unite with to undertake the collective action that's necessary to actually challenge the problems we're facing. Exactly. We need to come together to face our challenges. We've got one more clip. This is the closing from Citations Needed about gerontocracy. Hey, An Amazon packing center or a tenants union or some kind of mutual aid program to help give harm reduction supplies to substance users in Nashville, Tennessee, whatever it is, whatever you're organizing. Mm -hmm. No one who does those things, who has to be, who's in the business of converting souls, right, of sort of convincing people to join a project, none of those people would ever really engage in that context in Generations Discourse. You wouldn't say, like, everyone join my Starbucks union except for that old fart down there. He's kind of a fucking loser. It's not a very useful way of creating a politics, right? And, in fact, older activists make up a base of progressive support for a lot of unions and progressive movements, sure. Of course. Are they disproportionately conservative? Yeah. Disproportionately white people are conservative. It doesn't mean you tell them all to fuck off, right? Like people aren't vague statistical cohorts. They're people. They're individuals. That's the whole point of why you shouldn't go around just making assumptions about people. And I think there is a downside to constantly talking in, in this Pepsi marketing way about politics where I do think it's sort of the implication is always that wouldn't it be better if just these old people went away? Mm -hmm. When I really think what we're talking about most of the time is, wouldn't it be better if these people with really shitty politics who've been in charge since before I was born, wouldn't they go away? But not be replaced by someone with equally shitty politics who's just very charismatic and charming. <laughs> There's a kind of ageism when people do the whole head padding, look at these idealistic Bernie 
voters who don't know how the real world, I mean, it's a similar form of stereotyping. It's obviously different because of the nature of how our society operates. Right. But apparently the real world works for people who are like 47 and like center right. Right. Like that's that's the thing. All those people should just be in charge. The old people don't know how the world works anymore because they're over the hill. And the young people don't know how the world works because they haven't lived long enough. Yeah. So now it's like 47 and white and conservative. They know how the world works. The old people are lame olds and the young people are a bunch of fucking pie in the sky dipshits and people who are exactly my age should be in charge. Yeah. So I think that that kind of sums it up. The idea that this is really age is a proxy for ideology is this current throughout everything we've been talking about. And I think that once you start to see it like that, you're like, Oh, Oh, they're not actually talking about old people. Like they're using that as a way to like shit on anyone who has a different viewpoint, but they are kind of uh, hinting that they want something different. I'm just going to play one last little four second clip from viewpoints, one that was kind of center left and one that was more um, that resonated with me. I don't know if that means it was less establishment or more um, thoughtful or nuanced. I'm not exactly sure. But I, I really have to say I have not. I have yet to find an episode of Citations Needed, and that was Citations Needed episode 167, if you're interested, and just some excerpts of it. But I, I haven't found a single episode that I that I didn't like and didn't have new information or a new way of looking at, at something that is currently going on in the news, because that's their whole thing, Citations Needed, is that's the theme. Would anyone like to call in and give their thoughts on gerontocracy? I'll say what I think about it. I have loudly for years gone around with a song in my head thinking about all of these people like Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer, which is, move, boomer, get out the way. But maybe that's just because I'm Gen X. I'm not sure. Jonathan, welcome. Okay. All right. Uh, somehow I got made a speaker. All right. Uh, yeah, I've kind of been two minds, about, but I have to, I have to, to a certain degree, disagree with uh, the boys on this one. Uh, it is a factor, and you know there are people out there who, uh, you know, study. Uh, you know, there's there's even a, like a subdiscipline of uh, psychology and, and sociology. Uh, you know, called generational theory, but it has to do with, uh, you know, what, uh, what aging, you know, certainly does to human psychology and uh, also to a large degree, um, you know, the, uh, like, they even integrate to some degree in economic theory, which I think is a little on the hokey side called, uh, you know, condrative cycles. Uh, these uh, long waveforms where they, uh, you know, in any way, like that, that's a little less important, I think, to it. But uh, there's this guy on Twitter, he's uh, at first person poll. His name is David Rosen. Uh, he's a political scientist. Like he, he publishes stuff on that and, and lectures on it. And uh, certainly the patterns that he observes 
in terms of ossified thinking, in terms of um, uh, institutional rigidity, um, in terms of you know the kinds of, of patterns that are are known to uh, come with uh, you know the psychology of aging, uh, do uh, certainly appear to be uh, major uh, factors that are are impediments to progress. Although they're certainly not the only, or you know, I'd be open to the argument they're not even the main. Uh, obstacle to things, but they certainly are a problem that probably should be addressed. And at very least, if you don't want to be ageist and eliminate these people uh, entirely, if they're still mentally competent, uh, at least uh, force a degree of, of generational diversity in there. It would be nice if the political parties took care of that. Andrew, what's on your mind? Hi, uh, I uh, was just, you know, thinking about how I'm 32, right? <laughs> this is funny, right? Okay, so, but when people my age joined um, Congress, I was kind of like, oh, that's that's cool. I think think they'll do pretty good. But then I found out that they are like the worst people, like people that I would I would not you know, get along with because in order to get into Congress, it's like a reverse, you know, it's like, who's, who's the most corrupt? Who's going to sell out the most? Who's going to take the most money? Who's going to say the things that the military industrial complex or the pharmaceutical companies or, you know, the, the corrupt Republican or democratic party or, um, you know, the mainstream, the corrupt mainstream media is going to elevate them or whatever. And even if, even if they go in there and they're not corrupt, then it seems as though something will happen to them um, and they'll turn and become corrupt. So I just think that like the whole, it, it's just all kind of ridiculous to me, like it, it really, to me, it really doesn't matter how old they are, uh, from what I've seen, since even, like, it's just the worst people from every generation who get in there. Yeah, bad politics is bad politics, no matter how young or old you are, right? Yeah, I was optimistic about having some of these younger ones uh, get elected, but nope, they are just as bad, and perhaps even worse because they're not as transparent and they're more uh, deceptive about what they do. So, well, I think so not, not trying to defend them, but, but I, it, so they're probably just as transparent. It just doesn't seem like it because the other people get zero coverage. And so it's a little bit hard to measure on that front. And, and I think that there's nobody in Congress yet that does anything like something that would begin to be accountability to their constituents by letting them know how they're voting on things. I don't get anything from Barbara Lee, and I'm registered, and I've contacted her. So I don't get anything from, from um, Padilla. I don't get anything from, who's my other, who's my, Feinstein. I met Feinstein in like 1982. 
Oh, before she started losing her marbles. Yes. Like there is, because like there, like you know, again, there is. Uh, I should say, in in relation to what Andrew was saying, we we did a couple of of episodes, uh, you know, uh, in you know, on those issues. There's certainly a lot more to canvas, uh, but uh, on the on our uh, call in, like what fresh hell, uh, you know, probably uh, you know the the you know episode two, three, four. Like we cover it, you know, these kinds of issues. Uh, you know, what is it? You know, why do they become corrupt? Uh, what is it that makes them corrupt? What could possibly inoculate them? Uh, understanding the nuances of how these systems work is, you know, whether you want to hijack it and uh, and appropriate it or uh, or bring it down and reconstruct a newer, better one. Uh, you kind of have to know. How, you know something about how these forces work, and I, you know, I, I keep. It sounds like I'm on it in the, you know, in Brianna's calling because I mention it so much. But for some reason, it's like the universe is trying to point me to Ralph Nader because somehow or another, all roads lead back to Ralph Nader and his project in the '70s, where he was he was trying to combat these forces. And of course, the the problems predate him by a considerable amount, but those things are worth doing a deep dive on because it's so easy uh, because of the complexity of it and the vastness of the institution to fall into a doomerous mindset. Well, why bother? It's impossible and blah, blah, blah. Well, there are reasons why all of these things happen and these institutions were constructed and they got this way uh, for a reason. And they're kind of, it's hard to know where to begin, but it's worth trying to deconstruct them. That's a project that, you know, uh, it might actually make you feel better about things uh, or at least more secure in knowing what's going on uh, just to maybe start diving into it. Uh, that's what I would do. But I was going to say something else. Um, so that was oof. What Fresh Hell is your show. People can yeah. look for What Fresh Hell. Oh. Like episode, one of the first several episodes, yeah? One, yeah, one of the two, one of the things yeah, that I, I wanted to, Sorry, I wanted to, to bring up was something you kind of brought up when you mentioned Feinstein is the fact that uh, I remember seeing a news story not too long ago. I think it was in Politico or Axios or one of those, uh, you know, Beltway uh, corporate outlets, which, you know, is amazing considering. But uh, there was, an, you know, some, they talked to a Capitol Hill pharmacist who said he fills prescriptions for no fewer than uh, three members of Congress for Alzheimer's medications like Aricept or Namenda, um, these are these are sitting elected uh, officials, and you know in the case we know for a fact one of them is Diane Feinstein, and she uh, as the uh, senior senator on the uh, and the chair of the uh, Judiciary Committee has a lot of power, okay and. She's, you know, the engine's running, but there's nobody behind the wheel. Like, that means you have a bunch of unelected people uh, running things from behind the scenes. And that is profoundly dangerous and anti-democratic. Because who elected those people to make those kinds of decisions on behalf of their constituents? Nobody. And the fact that, you know, seniority is everything, and that's how you get power. And to give up that senior senator would be to give up that power to, uh, you know, somebody else. It just, it's, uh, you know, it's a very, it's, it's a very pernicious, it's a very anti-democratic 
very, uh, you know, just self-destructive uh, system that we have set up there that enables uh, people that are, frankly, not competent to govern to uh, be making some of the most important, most critical decisions in how the country is run. And you can see, you look around you during the pandemic, like this country yeah. doesn't work. It's falling apart at the seams. Andrew, did you have something you wanted to contribute? Yeah, yeah, I had a couple. Well, I have a question and some comments. Uh, Jonathan, we must be on the same same wavelength today because I earlier uh, in an earlier call that have sociopathic tendencies because they can work with gray line with like uh, um, ethical gray lines. They can work within that, and so I mean that's beyond ethical gray lines to me, but. Um, yeah, anyway, uh, I agree. Thank you for adding that, Omar. I appreciate that. Um, <laughs> oh, I, th I, maybe he, maybe he fell out. Uh, I want to, I want to acknowledge you guys who, who showed up today and, um, go ahead and do that. Uh, please follow me. The next show is going to be Saturday, the 15th, and I think it's going to be from the Stop the Wars at Home and Abroad Anti-War Coalition um, Back to the Streets event in Oakland. Um, you can go to unacnotowar.net. I have put that in the chat to find out if there is uh, an event in your town or city and it also encourages you, if you don't find one in your city, that it encourages you to have one for your city and gives you some, um, some material and structure to be able to do that. I encourage everyone to please uh, go say no to U.S. wars. Uh, the event is happening between October 15th and the 23rd, and you can go to unacnotowar.net. I put that in the chat, and I, I very strongly anti-war. This organization is, from what I can tell, a good organization, and I encourage everybody, if, if it is before, if you're listening to this before October 23rd, 2022, please go see if you can have an action in your town for saying no to U.S. wars, saying no to NATO. Thank you, everybody. I hope you have a great rest of your week, and I will be seeing you soon.